Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Each year, the Southern Foodways Alliance chooses a theme for our work, a way to think about food that can offer insights. For 2018, we focused on narratives, on novels and other forms of literature that reveal truths about the South. We invited Randall Keenan, the North Carolina novelist, to speak of yams, which you might know as sweet potatoes. He spoke of how they serve as a character in the Ralph Ellison novel, Invisible Man, a great American novel. He also spoke of canned spinach and shameless chitlin eating and weak beer and moonshine that can make a dead man holler. Let's give a listen. I yam. I often like to ask my students, what is the most important sentence in the Bible? The answer tends to be obvious, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or in the beginning God created heaven and earth, or no more water but fire next time, which is not in the Bible, or any number of other famous and meaningful verses. But I like to point to the moment in the third chapter of Exodus, when Moses stands before the burning bush and has a conversation with the Almighty and asks whom he should tell Pharaoh sent him to court to demand the release of the Hebrew slaves. The flaming bush replies, I am that I am. Powerful stuff, don't you think? I am that I am. Once upon a time, Americans spoke with great seriousness about the great American novel. There could only be one. And the people who took this seriously assumed the author would be a man, probably a white man. Over the years, those tenants, even the underlying question, seemed to have fallen out of favor for better or for worse. When is the last time you heard someone talk about the great American novel, let alone take it seriously? But, being a gentleman of a certain age, the concept swims to the surface of my mind from time to time to time. Personally, I am obsessed with Moby Dick and Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon and, on given days, Robert Penn Warren's All the King's Men. However, if I were a betting man and you made me put money down on it, I could make a powerful argument for Ralph Ellison's 1952 award-winning novel, Invisible Man. It might could be the great American novel. It might could. If you are unfamiliar with the book, please allow me to give a brief description. Many critics like to call Invisible Man a Bildungsroman, a coming-of-age novel, which it is. 
but I like to think of it as more of a picaresque in the mode of Cervantes' Don Quixote, where our main character is on the road, traveling or wandering with a purpose, and, like the man from La Mancha, the protagonist lacks self-awareness, but comes to see his own delusion by and by. Our hero begins in the South, at a school very like Tuskegee Institute, where Ellison studied music, in the shadow of the recently dead founder, Booker T. Washington. Our hero moves north, as did Ellison, first to Chicago and then to Harlem, New York. With a huge nod to Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground, Ellison gives us an unnamed narrator who tells his story of essentially being on the lam, holed up in a basement or subway tunnel in Manhattan, illuminated by 1,369 lights. This fantastical element is another source of Ellison's genius. The book takes on many tones throughout its 581 pages. Surrealism, Expressionism, Social Realism, Oral History. On top of all that, Ellison's language is nothing short of virtuosic, a nearly impossible feat with words to maintain over such a long distance. He gives us the English of Thomas Jefferson and the Declaration. He gives us Ralph Emerson's high essay style. He gives us African-American English flavored with salt, pork, and collard greens. He gives us the language of American mass media and business. For our purposes here today, I'd like to focus on chapter 13. By now, we have gotten well into the meat of the story. And, like Don Quixote, our hero is coming to some self-illumination where 1,369 light bulbs could not help him, a particular edible root would come to the rescue. Get your hot-baked Carolina yams, calls out a street vendor. At the corner, the old man, wrapped in an army overcoat, his feet covered with many gunny sacks, his head in a knitted cap, was puttering with a stack of paper bags. I saw a crude sign on the side of the wagon proclaiming, Yams! as I walked flush into the warmth thrown by the coals that glowed in a grate underneath. We are in Harlem, USA, probably between the two great wars. Here are two facts that people often conveniently forget about Harlem, if you know them at all. First, Harlem as we have come to know it is essentially a southern city at the north of Manhattan Island. Harlem became largely populated by black Southerners fleeing North and South Carolina and Virginia and Georgia and Alabama and Florida from the years just before World War II to the middle of the Great Depression. A great many arrived from the South on a locomotive known affectionately as the Chicken Bone Special. The second thing is that Harlem is essentially a 20th century phenomenon. In the 19th century, black folk lived all over the island and even had a village, Seneca, within the city where now Central Park is located. It existed from 1825 to 1857 when it was torn down in the name of civic renewal. So what we think of today as Harlem was not only largely African-American, but it was also sweetly Southern. We could think of it as a Negro colony of the South taken root in the North. Southern culture, language, arts, religion, and of course foodways predominated north of 125th Street all the way up to Edgecombe Avenue. Nowadays we think of food trucks as the cutting edge, the burning hot culinary trend. 
we have TV shows and movies about them. But in truth, they are as old as cities. Thebes, Athens, Ur, Edo, all had food carts of some fashion. Bringing the food to the people always made good business sense. We have had the wheel for a good long time. That southern black folk away in cold New York would be catered to with piping hot yams makes bold good sense and reflects the reality of the time. The sweet potato was the standard, especially in the Carolinas. North Carolina now produces 50% of the nation's sweet potatoes, I am proud to say. And a wise entrepreneur would be providing what was most familiar to his clientele at a bargain price. Moreover, sweet potatoes are wonderfully mobile. I did say sweet potato and not yam. The yam is a product of Africa and Asia. The sweet potato is a new world root. Sweet potatoes are dense and orange, rich in beta-carotene. Yams are less firm and tend toward being yellow in color. Linguists can't agree on when or exactly why it happened, but English speakers have been confusing the two foods for centuries, using sweet potato and yam interchangeably, which is a rather fitting metaphor for America. At Thanksgiving, when my aunts put out candied yams, I don't freak out. I know they know they are feeding me sweet potatoes. But candied yams sound so darn festive. Surely that is how the protagonist in Invisible Man feels when he encounters the Carolina yams on the streets of Harlem. How much are your yams, I said, suddenly hungry. They ten cents and they sweet, he said, his voice quavering with age. These ain't none of them binding ones, neither. These here is real. Sweet yaller yams. How many? One, I said. If they're that good, one should be enough. I knew that it was sweet before I broke it. Bubbles of brown syrup had burst the skin. Break it, and I'll give you some butter since you're going to eat it here. Lots of folk take them home. They got their own butter at home. I broke it, seeing the sugary pulp steaming in the cold. I held it, watching him pour a spoonful of melted butter over the yam, and the butter seeped in. And later, I took a bite, finding it as sweet and hot as any I've ever had, and was overcome with a surge of homesickness that I turned away to keep my control. I walked along, munching the yam just as suddenly overcome by an intense feeling of freedom, simply because I was eating while walking along the street. It was exhilarating. I no longer had to worry about who saw me or about what was proper. To hell with all that. And as sweet as the yam actually was, it became like nectar with the thought. I should point out here two things. One, that Ellison and his good buddy, the novelist Richard Wright, were both deeply influenced by the European novel of ideas. Philosophy masquerading as fiction. Think Albert Camus, think Jean-Paul Sartre, and others. Ellison floats weighty philosophical ideas throughout the novel, but buoyantly, concretely, this yam episode in chapter 13 being one of his most successful forays. The other point is that chapter 13 in particular is packed full of food imagery. Not long after the aforementioned breaking of the yam, the narrator invokes, You a shameless chitlin eater! 
He talks about mustard greens, racks of pig ears, pork chops, and black-eyed peas with dull, accusing eyes. Our hero goes on such a Camus-style reverie that he comes to confront his own conflicted emotions and notions about blackness, which leads him to declare of the yam, They're my birthmark, I said. I yam what I am. And to ultimately think, What and how much had I lost by trying to do only what was expected of me, instead of what I myself had wished to do? What a waste. What a senseless waste. But what of those things which you actually didn't like? Not because you were supposed to like them, not because to dislike them was considered a mark of refinement and education, but because you actually found them distasteful. How could you know? It involved a problem of choice. I would have to weigh many things carefully before deciding, and there would be some things that would cause quite a bit of trouble, simply because I had never formed a personal attitude towards so much. I had accepted the accepted attitudes, and it had made life seem simple. I am what I am. As a boy, I loved me some Popeye. When I first read this book back in my late teens, the idea that Ralph Ellison was playing with a cartoon character, a cartoon character who got his superpowers from spinach, canned spinach, and the idea that a fancy-pants intellectual National Book Award-winning novelist would play around with pop culture seemed well beyond the veil. But Popeye had been around for decades by 1952, and Ellison was clearly and intentionally messing with us like that. I am what I am. As a sometime literary critic and as a writer of fiction, I militate against the term symbol. Symbols are the stuff of literary garden parties in seventh grade English classes. They are weak beer. And we are looking for the strong stuff. What Ellison is doing here is much more akin to moonshine. It can make a dead man holler. The crucifix is a symbol, the cross the trinket people hang around their necks, or the objet d'art tacked to the wall over the bed. But in the New Testament, the cross is a living thing. It interacts with the human body. People bleed and suffocate on it. It is a tool of torture and death. If it is a symbol of anything, it is a symbol of imperial Roman authority and power. It looms literally over the occupied. It does work. It has a function. It is a character. The yam sweet potato in Invisible Man is not simply a symbol. It has a function. It is a character. In many ways, it is alive. In fact, it was once. For me, the hallmark of food in literature raised to the level of art is food interacting with character, food as character, food doing stuff, food being stuff. Just as it happens with our flesh and blood, our mouths and our bellies and our memories. The best writers, the better writers, know that food is identity. Food is alive. Food is us. Gertrude Stein once observed, It is rude to have your characters sit down to dine and not tell the reader what they are eating. This notion always made profound sense to me. I always tell you what my people are eating, what they love, what they hate to put in their mouths. I am what I am. 
I am that I am is, of course, the King James translation of the Old Testament Pentateuch. Other translations of the original Hebrew have it as, I am who I am, I am he who is, and I am because I am, among many other permutations. Language can do that, and that is why we are here. Language bends, language reflects and refracts, language resonates, language multiplies and has multiple meanings. Language confounds, language comforts, Language is how we take hold of the world. I will be what I will be. I create what I create. I am what I am. Bon appetit, brothers and sisters. We thank Randall Keenan, who teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, for sharing his 2018 Fall SFA Symposium Address. We hope you'll join us here in Oxford for the 2019 Fall Symposium set for October 24 through 26. If you haven't yet read his work, begin with The Visitation of Spirits, focus on the world where Randall Keenan grew up, Eastern North Carolina. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, donor music is by Jazar, managing editor for Gravy and other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam, and our publisher is Mary Beth Laster. We thank Sarah Wood, our former oral historian, for recording Randall Keenan's talk. Jenny Ament, a podcast producer for Politico and contributing editor for The Organist, mixed this episode. For more information on the annual SFA Symposium and to see films and oral history work shared during the weekend, we encourage you to visit the SFA website at southernfoodways.org. While you're there, please consider a donation to the SFA. Your generosity helps fund all of our work, including this podcast. Donations are tax deductible and may be made online at southernfoodways.org. 